I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Do you ever get overwhelmed by anxiety? These are troubling times, but there are successful strategies for managing anxiety. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Uncertainty often leads to anxiety, and anxiety can lead to bad habits such as stress eating, drinking too much alcohol, or binging on Netflix. Is anxiety hiding behind any of your unwelcome habits? Our guest today is an expert on both anxiety and bad habits. Dr. Judson Brewer is the author of Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, learn how kindness and curiosity can help you manage your anxiety. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines... Although the first official COVID-19 diagnosis in the U.S. was made in late January 2020, new research shows that the virus was circulating in this country weeks earlier. The National Institutes of Health, in its All of Us study, has analyzed more than 24,000 blood samples taken between January 2nd and March 18, 2020. The scientists looked for antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes covid They found positive samples as early as January 7 in Illinois, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. All these areas are distant from Seattle and New York City, which were considered the earliest ports of entry. This is before any known diagnoses in these states. The investigators utilized two different strategies for analyzing antibodies. One of these included IgG, which shows up a few weeks after exposure to a pathogen. For these antibodies to show up in early January, infected people were most likely traveling around the country and spreading the virus in December 2019. The Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2 is spreading around the world. Last week, public health officials estimated that it accounted for 6% of the cases detected in the U.S. This week, it has been declared a variant of concern by the CDC. It's now estimated to be responsible for 10% of the new cases of COVID-19 in America. Delta is the variant that was first identified in India and accounted for much of the terrible surge in COVID cases there recently. This form of the virus is more transmissible and may also be more deadly. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb is warning that it might cause serious trouble in the fall unless we're able to complete vaccination at much higher rates. Current vaccines are effective against the Delta variant, but unvaccinated people are at risk. A new study by the independent nonprofit organization Fair Health reveals that a surprising number of people are experiencing new health problems 30 days or more after recovering from COVID-19. The researchers found that even people whose infections were asymptomatic might need health care for a problem such as brain fog, breathing trouble, cough, pain, fatigue, headaches, dizziness, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, insomnia, anxiety, or depression. 
Insurance data from roughly 2 million COVID patients were analyzed. These post-COVID symptoms affected all age groups. About half of those who had been hospitalized sought help because of ongoing complications. For those who had mild infections, the proportion was over 27%. One in five of those who had no symptoms of COVID were struggling with post-COVID syndrome. Some of these individuals may not have even realized that they'd been infected months before. We've been hearing increasingly about the gut-brain connection that relies on the specific microbes living in the intestines. Now, research from the Cleveland Clinic demonstrates that the denizens of the digestive tract impact the severity of strokes and how much impairment results. Certain microbes produce quantities of trimethylamine N-oxide, or TMAO, when they metabolize red meat and choline from animal sources. In animal research, transplanting gut microbes that make more TMAO aggravated the seriousness of experimental strokes. Higher levels of TMAO were associated with more brain damage and long-lasting functional deficits. Shifting the diet to reduce TMAO, especially limiting eggs and meat, also reduced stroke severity. In light of these animal data, the scientists suggest that a plant-rich diet would lower TMAO and help protect the brain from strokes. Most older people would like to know how to keep their brains healthy as they age. There are no pills that would do this, but... A new randomized control trial suggests that a combination of a healthy diet and moderate-intensity aerobic exercise can make a difference. Over 1,400 men and women between 57 and 78 years of age participated in the four-year study. Neither intervention alone was successful, but together, these lifestyle changes seem to improve cognition. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. How do you handle uncertainty? The last few years have had a lot of uncertainty on multiple fronts in terms of politics, economics, and public health. Many people find that this makes them anxious. How do you react when you're feeling anxious or insecure? To help us grapple with these challenging issues, we turn to Dr. Judson Brewer. He's a neuroscientist and addiction psychiatrist and an associate professor in the School of Public Health and the Medical School at Brown University. His TED Talk was A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit. Dr. Brewer is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. And his latest book is Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Judd Brewer. Thanks for having me. Dr. Brewer, it's been a hard year, hard year and a half. Uh, The pandemic has impacted all of us and anxiety has skyrocketed. And and it was pretty bad before the pandemic. So let's let's start with the basics. What is anxiety? I think we all know what it feels like, but but how do you define it? 
Yes. I like the definition that goes something like, you know, this feeling of nervousness or worry or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And I think here we can focus on that bit about the uncertain outcome. (laughs) I think we've all been feeling pretty nervous and there have been a lot of uncertain outcomes that still, you know, many of them not resolved yet over the last year. So it's really that, that feeling, you know, that nervousness, that worry, that tightness, that tension, uh, that's that's the way I define anxiety. Now, Dr. Brewer, I hate to say it, but life is uncertain. So should we be feeling anxious all the time? <laughs> that is a great question. The answer is no. Uh, yet it doesn't stop us from feeling anxious a lot. And in fact, you know, we've seen anxiety on the rise even before the pandemic. It just really spiked in 2020. Dr. Brewer, what are the conditions that are typically likely to trigger anxiety in your patients and your colleagues' patients? The biggest one that I see is really uncertainty. And this goes back to our survival brains. You know, our old survival brains were set up to help us basically remember where food is so that we could get it again and also remember where danger is so we could avoid it in the future. Yet layered on top of this survival brain is a uh, is our prefrontal cortex, the, the neocortex, literally the new brain, helps us survive in a different way, which is through planning for the future. It takes past scenarios and takes information in the present moment and puts those together and projects into the future so it can kind of predict, try to predict the future. And for that, you can think of our old survival brain, you know, when our stomach is rumbling, uh, that means we need some calories and we go get food. You can think of the newer brain as uh, when there's not information or when there's uncertainty, that part of the brain starts, it starts rumbling and says, go get information. You can think of information as food for the brain. So that uncertainty is a huge driver of anxiety. If we can't get that information, our brains start to overheat. You know, it's like an engine, you know, that's that's revved too high and, and they start thinking of all the worst case scenarios. And that's when we spin out into anxiety. Well, I'm sure there are all kinds of examples that you can give, but but let me give you one. Our website engineer lives in Italy and he was coming home to the US to visit his family. And he said, we got into trouble at the airport because they, my, my wife needed to have her visa. I mean, there was just a big mess and we almost missed the plane. And so I asked him, well, were you anxious? And he said, not really, because it always happens. I'm, I'm, I'm always aware of the fact that whenever we try to take an international flight, there can be screw ups. So I was kind of prepared for it. And so for him, that uncertainty was just built in and it didn't make him anxious. That, mm-hmm. that would have driven me crazy. <laughs> well, so this is one of the kickers here. As I mentioned, uncertainty doesn't have to always cause anxiety. It's how we deal with the uncertainty. Now, our old survival brain says, you know, this is uncomfortable, make this go away. And so often, you know, we'll start thinking of all the worst case scenarios in which we spin out into anxiety or we'll do other things like we'll go on social media or, you know, there are many things we do to distract ourselves. Yet instead of running away, we can actually lean into the uncertainty. And so whether it's certainty, like, oh, knowing at the airport, oh, you know, I know this always happens, even though there is some uncertainty in that scenario, 
But knowing something's going to happen gives us some certainty, like I can expect this. And our brains like, you know, that's them predicting the future. It says, oh, I'm guessing that this is going to happen again at the airport, you know, and so we don't get we don't get anxious. But also when there is uncertainty, you know, we can actually lean into that and know that there's always going to be uncertainty and start to learn to be okay with things being uncertain. That's when we can take any scenario and start, instead of getting anxious about it, start to lean into it and and learn from it even. Dr. Brewer, you've pointed out that we don't always know when we're anxious. And in particular, you share in your book, Unwinding Anxiety, your own initial experience with your own anxiety and how difficult it was for you to acknowledge that you actually were anxious and not otherwise ill. Would you tell us that story, please? <laughs> sure. I'll spare you the gory details. Uh, but the at the end of college, I... I thought that I had a GI tract infection. I thought, you know, I'd done a lot of backpacking and thought I had this giardiasis, this, this bacterial infection. So I went to the student health and the doctor asked me, you know, hey, do you think you could be anxious? <laughs> and I basically said, no, I'm not anxious. You know, I run, I play the violin, I'm a vegetarian, but, you know, I do all these stress management things. I can't possibly be anxious. <laughs> and he kind of backed up and was like, okay. <laughs> and of course, you know, he gives me the antibiotic, you know, to, to appease me probably. And of course it didn't work. And that's when I realized, wait a minute, this, this probably isn't a bacterial infection. You know, he was the doctor after all. And, uh, and in fact, it was, it was what turned out to be irritable bowel syndrome, which is basically, you know, my anxiety manifesting in my guts and, you know, my, my GI tract was trying to let me know, Hey, you know, you might be anxious. You mentioned that anxiety hides in people's habits and in their bodies. And my mom was habitually worrying. I mean, she thought that if you worried hard enough, you could prevent bad things from happening. And so that was her habit. Just mm -hmm. worry, worry, worry. What sorts of habits are hiding anxiety? Well, there are many of them. And I've seen a huge spike even in my clinic in, in these over the last year. So it's it, you know, I've seen it in stress eating. So what was the joke? The quarantine 15, which got updated to the quarantine 30 as people were, you know, gaining weight during the pandemic because they were turning to their refrigerators to numb themselves or to distract themselves from their anxiety. We've seen alcohol use go up in a lot of uh, people over the last year. And that's been well documented. People are binge binging on Netflix, going on social media. Uh, there are many ways that anxiety hides in our habits. Uh, and I think as, as you're pointing out, anxiety can be a habit itself, which I had never realized until just a couple of years ago. How does that work? Well, basically, any habit is formed through three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So, you know, think of our ancient ancestors out on the savanna. They see some food. There's the trigger. That's the first element. They eat the food. There's the behavior. That's the second element. And then their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and what you found it. So that re result is that third element. And that feeds back to the trigger. 
so that the next time our we see or hear or feel or think you know a trigger we act out that behavior anxiety can be driven in the same way this is research going back to the 1980s that suggests this in the sense that anxiety or fear can be a trigger worry is that mental behavior so we often think of behaviors as physical but worry can be a mental behavior and then the result of that is that we feel like we're in control <laughs> like pointing out you know the the more we worry we can the more we think we can keep our family members safe or solve a problem or whatever and then that feeds back so that the next time we have that feeling or that pang of anxiety it triggers more worry and then it starts to spiral out of control cuz worry actually just drives more anxiety so you've talked about three different things we've talked about fear anxiety and worry what are the differences between them you can think of fear as a you know it's a it's a very fast response that we have it's a very helpful survival mechanism you know if we uh, walk into a dark alley and suddenly we feel fear and we run uh, that helps us potentially survive you know ancient ancestors same thing you know saber tooth tiger they see the the saber tooth tiger they run uh, so fear is this you know is this helpful survival mechanism we all know what fear feels like that's different than the feeling of anxiety which is more of this you know it's it's a slower process where it doesn't happen like it can pop up immediately but it tends to hang around for a long time and that uh-huh. feeling tends to be this revved up you know physiologic response where we think you know we could be in danger in the future basically we're worried about the danger Right. And then worrying is that mental behavior where we just are constantly playing out all the worst case scenarios. You're listening to Dr. Judson Brewer, associate professor in the medical school and the School of Public Health at Brown University. His books include The Craving Mind and his latest, Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. After the break, we'll talk about my favorite slogan. Hope for the best, plan for the worst. Am I just making myself more anxious? Dr. Brewer's got three gears for unwinding anxiety. We'll find out what they are. How can you come up with a bigger, better offer that can displace your anxiety habit? What are the differences between fear, anxiety, and worry? You'll also learn about a couple of simple but powerful tools for changing behavior, kindness and curiosity. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy podcast is supported in part by Cocovia. Cocovia cocoflavanol support both cardiovascular health and cognitive function by promoting healthy blood flow, transporting oxygen and nutrients to vital muscles and organs, including your heart and brain. Now, through the end of June, you can save $20 on a three-month or six-month order of Cocovia Memory Plus. Just use the code BRAIN20 when you check out at cocovia.com. That's uppercase B-R-A-I-N, the number 2-0. June is Brain Health Month. Celebrate with Memory Plus for 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols per serving. Look for it at cocovia.com. (laughs) 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products made in Germany, K-A-Y-A-Biotics.com. Also by Coco via Memory Plus, a cocoflavanol supplement backed by four clinical studies that show significant improvement in three different aspects of memory. More information at cocovia.com. Today we're talking about how to manage your anxiety. Is there anxiety hiding in any of your habits? We'll find out how to change them if you want to do that. Our guest, Dr. Judson Brewer, is an associate professor in the medical school and the School of Public Health at Brown University. His books include The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, why we get hooked, and how we can break bad habits. And his latest, Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. Dr. Brewer, I have a good friend who has a mantra that a lot of people probably have. It's hope for the best, plan for the worst. And it seems like that's a formula for anxiety. It can be. I I like the phrase as well, hope for the best, plan for the worst. And so it really depends on this planning piece. So if you are thinking and planning part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is very helpful. And if we we plan for the worst, then we will be prepared, like any good boy or girl scout, I guess. Yet that planning... When we start to slip into the worrying, that's when the planning brain actually goes offline and it makes it harder for us to think and plan. The worrying is not, you know, it's kind of like we plan something twice to make sure we haven't missed anything, maybe a third time to make sure. But then if we're the fourth time, the fifth time, the 15th time, the 50th time, you know, that's when we're just spinning our wheels and spinning out in anxiety. It's not actually doing any planning at that point, but it is certainly making us anxious. Well, when we talk about spinning wheels, let's talk about gears. Your book is called Unwinding Anxiety, and you break it down very helpfully into three different gears. Can you tell us about how we can unwind anxiety First gear, second gear, third gear. I'd be happy to. And this actually came from a lot of research that my lab has done around habit change and also my own clinical practice where I was realizing that my patients really didn't know how their minds worked. When it comes to anxiety, for example, they didn't they didn't even know that they were, you know, they were caught in habit loops around anxiety. So the first gear is really set up to help people just map out their own habit loops. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? I can give an example of a patient that I write about who was referred to me for anxiety, and he'd had anxiety for about 30 years. He had panic disorder, he had generalized anxiety disorder. And he was describing how he would drive on the highway and he would have these thoughts that he was in this speeding bullet and he would start to get panic attacks on the highway, which was leading him to avoid driving on the highway. And so we just, I pulled out a piece of paper and just mapped out, you know, I said, okay, what's the trigger, these thoughts, what's the behavior, avoiding driving on the highway, and what's the result? Well, he could avoid having panic attacks. And then when I just drew the arrows between the three and showed him how, you know, avoiding driving on the highway was rewarding for him in the moment, but then feeding back and making it hard for him to actually, you know, uh, thrive in the world because he was, he was really avoiding driving, 
it was this light bulb for him where he could just see, oh, that's how my mind works. It's actually feeding itself. And in fact, he was able to go on and map out a bunch of other habit loops. He would he realized that anxiety was triggering him to stress eat, talking about, you know, anxiety hiding in habits. And then that stress eating was, you know, giving him this brief relief until he realized that it, it wasn't actually that helpful for him. So that's that's the first gear is just mapping out a habit loop. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? The second gear, and, and this is one of my favorite parts of how the, the beauty of neuroscience and clinical practice come together. So the only way to change uh, any habit is to update the reward value of that behavior in our brain. You know, if it's really rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not, we're going to stop doing it. And so I'll, I'll continue with the example of my patient. When we really can see clearly that a behavior is not rewarding, we become disenchanted with it. And so, you know, I'd sent this patient home to map out his habit loops around anxiety. And he came to, he came back two weeks later. Oh, I forgot to mention he was 180 pounds overweight. So he came back two weeks later. And the first thing he said to me, he was all excited. He said, doc, I lost 14 pounds. And I was looked at him kind of uh, incredulously because we hadn't even talked about weight loss yet. And he said, yeah, I was mapping out these habit loops and anxiety was triggering me to stress eat. And I realized it wasn't that helpful. So I stopped doing it. <laughs> and and that's a beautiful example of somebody becoming disenchanted with an old habit. He went on to lose over 100 pounds. Um, but the key element there is that when we pay attention to the cause and effect relationship, if the behavior is stress eating, for example, and the result is that we're actually feeling guilty or feeling bad or whatever, and it's not fixing the anxiety, then we can start to become disenchanted with it. In fact, my lab has done some studies where we we have this Eat Right Now app where we have people pay attention as they overeat, and it only takes 10 or 15 times for that reward value to drop below zero. So that's that's that second gear is helping our brains update the reward value of whatever the behavior is, whether it's worrying or whether it's overeating or whatever. And I like the simple question. I have people ask this question, what am I getting from this? And really feeling into their their embodied experience, not just thinking, oh, it's bad for me, but really saying, oh, what am I getting from this? Like the worry, is it keeping my family member safe? No. Is it solving the problem? Generally not, <laughs> you know, and all those things. And that helps us start to become disenchanted with the behavior, which then opens up the space to bring in something with a higher reward value. And that's the third gear. I call this uh, the BBO, the bigger, better offer. So if we can give our brain something better, then it will naturally move in that direction. And the, I, I think of these BBOs coming in two main flavors. One, uh, curiosity, and one is kindness. So for example, when we're feeling anxious, what feels better, anxiety or curiosity? You know, curiosity, it's a no-brainer. Our curiosity feels better. So those are the three gears. You know, map it out, first gear. Uh, check the reward value, second gear. What am I getting from this? And find that bigger, better offer, third gear, like curiosity and kindness. Dr. Brewer, can you give us a few more examples, please? Because what you're describing sounds really helpful, but I think we learn best from examples. Mm -hmm. And the one that you've given us with regard to this um, patient who couldn't drive on the highway and also discovered that the eating behavior was not really rewarding him but maybe some other patients or some other situations so that we can better understand the the BBO, the bigger, better offer. 
I'd be happy to. So I've worked with a number of patients with binge eating disorder, for example, but anybody that overeats or, or has a negative body image uh, can get caught up in self-judgment, for example. So with them, I might map out the habit loop around self-judgment. So they think about how, you know, often, often people think, you know, there's something wrong with them because they can't control their worry or they can't control their eating. And so there's the trigger. They have a thought or they look in the mirror or something like that, or they you know, misconstrue somebody's, uh, somebody's statement and think that it's, you know, it's, it's pointing out to what they look like or something. The behavior there is self-judgment and that self-judgment at that moment, I have them, you know, map it out and then shift into second gear and ask themselves, what am I getting from judging myself? Well, you know, beating ourselves up can be self-reinforcing because it feels like we're doing something, you know, just like worrying is doing something. Yet they realize that beating themselves up is actually painful. And in fact, I've had patients with binge eating disorder that when they judge themselves, it actually triggers more binge eating because that's, you know, binge eating has been their, their, their brief relief uh, strategy uh, over the years. So there's an example, you know, self-judgment. And then with self-judgment, we can compare it, you know, when we judge ourselves to when we're kind to ourselves and which one feels better here, you know, kindness wins <laughs> hands down. Let me give you an example and I apologize to our listeners because I've used this example so many times. They're sick and tired of hearing it, <laughs> but I'd love your feedback. Um, I used to do a lot of traveling on book tours. You might be familiar with that yourself. And whenever there was like, um, you know, a mechanical problem with the airplane or a weather problem or a delay, it made me very anxious because I, I needed to get to the next city for the next interview. And my go-to stress reliever, anxiety reliever was good and plenty. So I'd head for the the local candy store. There was always something in the in the airport. And I would buy a box of good and plenties and I'd say to myself, I'm just gonna have one or two or three or four. <laughs> or the box. Or the box. <laughs> and it was gone in minutes. Yeah. And um that was my quote unquote reward for you know, being stuck in an anxious situation. And then about a half hour to an hour later, I just felt awful. Blah! Yeah. Yuck! Sugar overload. And I had done this enough that I was like, you know, this isn't really working very well. Mm. Yeah. And I gave up the good in plenties. And if I needed something, I switched to nuts <laughs> and I didn't feel bad. Yeah. Um, is that what you're talking about in terms of sort of the... BBO? Yeah, let me make sure I've got this right. So you realized that eating good and plenties didn't fix the mechanical problem in the airplane. Is that right? Well, that was for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but they also gave you the gut bomb. Uh, exactly. Me. Yeah. Made me feel bad. Yeah, yeah. So that is disenchantment in a nutshell. You're describing it beautifully. And as you become disenchanted, well, let me ask you this, not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot. Was it hard to switch over to nuts when you could, you know, remember what it was like the last time you ate the whole box of Good and Plenty's? There is still the temptation every once in a while if I'm in an airport and if that <laughs> situation arises, I think about Good and Plenty's. Yeah. And then I think, but I'm going to feel awful about an hour later or less than that. And so I just say, I don't need them anymore. 
they won't help. And they certainly won't fix the airplane. And um, if I even need anything, then then I go to the nuts and I don't even really need them very much. Yeah. Yeah. So that you're describing this study that my lab did beautifully. You could have been in the study where when you pay attention and you remember what the results were from the last time you did X and your brain is disenchanted with it because it doesn't feel good, then you can naturally step away from the behavior in a way that's not forced. It's not effortful. It's not based on willpower. Yeah. So that's you're, you're describing this process that we all have, right? This is this is something that our brain has set up is the most basic survival mechanism, which is, you know, don't do things that don't feel good. And then here, you know, the bigger, better offer was, as you pointed out, if you needed them uh, to have some nuts, but probably even noticing, you know, if it was stress eating, the eating nuts doesn't actually satisfy that because you're not hungry in the, in the first place, if I've got that right. Exactly. Dr. Brewer, I'm wondering if you can tell us how we can recognize our triggers and take steps to defuse them. Hmm. That's a great question. So sometimes it just is a matter of knowing that the triggers exist and then being on the lookout for them. At other times, we don't notice what triggers things, especially with anxiety. I see this a lot in my clinic where my patients wake up in the morning and they just start to feel anxious and they can't figure out what the trigger is. And in fact, they start worrying because they can't find the trigger. And so here, it, there's a little bit of neuroscience that's helpful here, which is to know the triggers are the least important part of the equation. Reward-based learning, you know, this process that we've been talking about is based on how rewarding a behavior is. A trigger just happens to be that thing that ticks, you know, that tips it off and, and gets the process going, like being in the airport. So the behavior and that relationship between the behavior and the result is the most important piece. So what I say to folks is, you know, if you can recognize a trigger, great. But if you can't, great. Don't worry about it. And don't get anxious, you know, trying to find it because we can go down into rabbit, this why rabbit hole where it's like, oh, why is this? You know, we go back to our childhood or whatever. And and I'm not, you know, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a therapist and I'm and now I'm saying, you know, don't, don't worry about the past so much. But when it comes to behavior change, when it comes to changing habits, that is true. You know, our childhood is nowhere in the formula of reward value <laughs> and reward-based learning. So it's really about focusing on the behavior. What's the behavior that I'm doing? Is it worrying? Is it procrastinating? Is it whatever? And then the result. What am I getting from this? You know, just like the good and plenty example. What am I getting from this? The gut bomb, not so rewarding. And that's what changes future behavior. Well, can you tell us then why curiosity and kindness are such powerful tools for changing behavior? I'd be happy to. I think of curiosity as a superpower. You know, it, it is amazing in so many ways. But one way that it helps is both with the second and third gear. So with second gear, it can help us really step back and go, oh, what am I getting from this? As compared to going in with this judgmental attitude, we're like, oh, you know, I shouldn't have overeaten. You know, what am I getting from this? Nothing. And we're kind of already going in with a bias. It, it really helps us be open to what's actually happening. So we can learn from it and we can move into, think of uh, Carol Dweck's growth mindset. We can, we can open to what's happening and go, oh, what's happening? You know, what am I getting from this? So that we can really take in all the information in an unbiased way. 
So it can help us start to see very, very clearly what the results of our behaviors are and so that we can drive that disenchantment most quickly and efficiently in second gear. And curiosity itself is a third gear practice because it feels better. So for example, with anxiety, you know, uh, when, when somebody is anxious, I recommend to them say, okay, see where you can feel it in your body. Is it more on the right side or the left side? And they go, hmm, I don't know. Is it that hmm is an indication that they're starting to awaken their curiosity. And then when they can, when they can find where they feel it the most, then I say, okay, what's it feel like? What makes up anxiety? Because anxiety is a concept, right? Is it the tightness that makes up anxiety? Well, that's tightness. Is it the um, is it the heat? Is it the restlessness? And they can start to see all of these composite elements. It's kind of like a a child uh, who hears a thunderstorm for the first time and they're scared of it, and then their parent takes them to the window and says, "Oh, oh, let's learn about thunderstorms." You know, and they get curious and say. Can you see the lightning? Oh, there's lightning. Can you hear the thunder? Oh, there's thunder. Can you see the rain? And they start to see all the composite elements and they see, oh, these are just these elements that make up this big, bad, scary concept of a thunderstorm. In the same way, we can awaken our curiosity to explore all the elements that make up that big, bad concept of anxiety. And in the process, we can see, oh, these are simply physical sensations. These are thoughts. And these come and go. They're not as scary as I thought. And already we start to unwind it simply through bringing that curiosity in as that third gear practice. Does that make sense? You're listening to Dr. Judson Brewer, author of Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. His previous book was The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. He's an associate professor in the School of Public Health and the Medical School of Brown University. After the break, we'll learn more about how kindness works. One of the most common ways to manage anxiety is with medication. Why do we keep on trying to fix anxiety with drugs like Valium, Xanax, or Ativan? They're known as benzodiazepines. One of the problems with such medicines is that it can be really tough to stop taking them. What does panic feel like? Why aren't drugs the best treatment? Dr. Brewer has developed a couple of apps that can help. What can apps that promote mindfulness help with? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs dot com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Coco Via Memory Plus. 
a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, the plant-based nutrients from fresh cocoa that help support memory. More information at cocovia.com. And by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products made in Germany. K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. Has anxiety led you into bad habits? We'll be talking about other ways to manage your anxiety. How can kindness and curiosity help? Our guest is Dr. Judd Brewer. He's an associate professor in the School of Public Health and the Medical School at Brown University. Dr. Brewer is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. His latest book is Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Dr. Brewer, you talked about curiosity and how important it is. What about kindness? How does that work? Well, there's an overlap in the physical and the emotional qualities of kindness and curiosity. And this is something that I think we all experience. But as a scientist, I had to study it to make sure that it was true. And when we look at things like anxiety, anxiety feels closed, it feels contracted. So does self-judgment. You know, when we judge ourselves, we feel a little more closed down, we feel a little more contracted. And so my lab did a study where we looked at, you know, I think 14 different mental states. And we asked people to rate two things. One is how open and closed do these different states feel? And then two, where would you rank these on a reward hierarchy? Now, we found a commonality between things like you know, anxiety and you know, anger and um, you know, frustration and things like that, where they all felt closed. And we found a commonality with uh, curiosity and kindness and connection even, where they all feel open. And of course, uh, which one feels better? These open states feel better than the closed states. And so here, kindness works in the very same way as a third gear practice uh, as curiosity. So curiosity can help us open to our experience of anxiety. Kindness can literally help us open to ourselves. And in moments when we're judging ourselves, we can start to see how unpleasant that is, how unrewarding it is. And then we can start to bring some kindness into ourselves. Now, if it's challenging for us to be kind to ourselves, we can just remember kindness of others. If somebody's been kind to us you know, recently, we can even notice what it's like when we watch people being kind to each other on videos on social media. You know, that's there's one of the one of the uplifting components where there are many fraught components, let's say, of social media. But one, you know, these these moments tend to go viral because they are just so amazing to watch when somebody is truly, genuinely being kind to somebody else. Dr. Brewer, we have often heard this concept of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the idea of willpower, mm. that we can somehow overcome our habits, our addictions, our anxiety. Why doesn't that work? <laughs> you know, we have somehow been trying to do this for centuries. You know, there's a relief on the Parthenon from ancient Greece where there's this rider and this horse and the rider is, you know, willpower trying to tame the horse, which is passions. 
So we've been trying to do this for centuries and we, you know, just look at any latest diet fad, you know, it's all about willpower, you know, just follow the diet, the formula is correct. And, you know, it's, you're the problem because you can't follow it. So the problem with this is that, (laughs) how do I put it uh, softly here? Willpower is more myth than muscle. And even if it, if we have some willpower strength, uh, the prefrontal cortex, which it seems to be the substrate, you know, that's needed for willpower, it's the first part of the brain that goes offline when we're stressed or ironically when we're hungry. Uh, so the, you know, if there is willpower, uh, which some cognitive neuroscientists debate altogether, you know, it's not in the formulas for habit change, you know, it's all about reward value, but if there is any, it's it's reliance on the weakest and the youngest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective. So here, you know, it's if you're going to trust anything, I would trust the older, stronger parts of the brain uh, as compared to to the weaker willpower parts. I think it's more a heuristic that you know makes us feel like we're in control. Going back to this control thing, where it's like, well, if I failed, at least it's my fault that I failed. When the truth is, well, if I failed at changing this habit or whatever. It's really because I haven't tapped into how my brain works. Well, speaking of how the brain works, a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists for decades believed that anxiety was kind of a neurochemistry problem. And if if we just gave you a, I know, a benzodiazepine, <laughs> I, I've got the I've got the perfect problem solver. It's called Valium Mm -hmm. or Librium or Xanax. In fact, we once got a call from a listener who said, my doctor says I have a Xanax deficiency syndrome (laughs) and and I just need to take Xanax for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's called withdrawal. (laughs) Well, that poor person. (laughs) Precisely. So... Why is it that we haven't been able to drug our way out of anxiety with either benzos or nowadays, I guess, SSRIs are more popular, uh, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or Paxil or some of the newer ones, Effexor. Give us some sense of pharmacology and anxiety. But actually, an even better question, I think, is why do we keep trying to drug our way out of anxiety? Mm. Both great questions. So can I answer those sequentially? Is that okay? Please Absolutely. do. Sure. So what was the the Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper? Yes. She goes running. I won't sing it, I promise. But what's the, the lyric is something like she goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper and it helps her on her way uh, through her busy day or something like that. And so they're singing about... Benzos, right? And that's how popular those things were. They were prescribed like candy in the 70s and 80s. And now, you know, if you look at the UK uh, NICE criteria, for example, they're no longer recommended as first line treatment. And in fact, any recommendations will say keep these as very short, (laughs) kind of immediate, like if you cannot think of anything else, you know, prescribe it for two weeks and, you know, no more longer than four weeks or something like that. 
So what they're pointing out is that benzos give us, they can become habit forming. And in fact, Xanax is because it is such rapid onset is one of the most habit forming of all of the benzos. And so it's not surprising to hear of the, the Xanax deficiency. Oh, because, you know, it gets out of our system quickly and then our it's just like a cigarette. And our brain says, oh, I need more Xanax. And then we get addicted to it. Well, so, let me let me share. Uh, we, we once heard from from someone else who said, uh, think of Effexor as side Effexor. Don't leave home without it because you will go into withdrawal within hours. I love that side effects. I'll have to remember that. Yes. So effects are also short half-life if you don't take the long acting version. And uh, people tend to can struggle with that one in terms of the side effects that they come on pretty quickly if it's if, if we have low blood levels of it. So you know, long story short, with things like benzos, uh, they, you know, they give us this brief relief. It's they act on the same receptor as alcohol. So it's like having a good stiff drink. And if we keep take, you know, if we take them and it makes us feel better, then we have to keep taking them. The problem is that they don't actually teach us anything about how our minds work and they don't help us work with our minds. And so there can, you know, it can be problematic and I won't go into all the details in terms of long, if, if somebody takes a benzo for a long time, the effects that that can have on their brain, et cetera. Let's just, you know, summarize it as saying it's probably not a great idea to be taking a benzo your entire life. Uh, so with SSRIs, if you look at them, they were originally developed for depression as you both know, but the if you look at the, uh, there's this term called number needed to treat, which gives us a quick and dirty sense of how well a, a treatment works. With SSRIs, I believe the number needed to treat is 5.2, which means I have to prescribe uh, an SSRI to five patients before one of my patients is going to show a significant reduction in symptoms. So I'm basically playing the anxiety lottery when I'm treating my patients. Long story short, it's not a, you know, not a great long-term uh, solution because I don't know which one is going to benefit in, you know, from it. And if one person does great, then you know, they can be on an SSRI. But what am I going to do with the other 80%? So here I think of it as you know, some people benefit from medications and hopefully we'll get better at figuring out who those people are in the future. And everybody can benefit from learning how their minds work and they can work with their minds. So, you know, if this question about why do we, you know, why do we keep looking for mother's little helper? Because it's easier to take a pill. If we could just pop a pill and solve all our problems, uh, it's, there's a convenience factor and there's an ease factor and there's a certainty factor that says, oh yeah, you know, the problem is that it's uncertain. We don't know who's going to benefit from an SSRI and we don't know enough about, you know, how to target specific neurochemistry to have medications be more effective. You know, think about this. This is a reward-based learning process that helps us survive and if it gets, you know, if it's getting co-opted into anxiety, how do you specifically target the anxiety loops with the exact same pathway and not mess up, you know, the rest of your learning processes? It's it's a tricky wicket. You know, it's a, it's a tough problem to solve and nobody's solved it yet. Dr. Brewer, let's take it another step. Go past anxiety to panic. And you shared your own you know, personal forthright example of panic. And, you know, for people who've never experienced panic, can, can you perhaps 
tell us what it's like. And, and before you do that, I'll just share this one very short little story. We have a, a good friend who described being caught in a whiteout driving in the mountains of New Hampshire and having a panic attack because she couldn't see where she was going. Now, in her case, I think that was that was probably self-preservation. She had no idea what was happening because, although she's 80 years old, she'd never had a panic attack before. Mm. But give us some sense of, you know, in her case, why panic made sense. She stopped driving immediately. And what it's like for other people. And then why maybe pharmacological treatments, which is what most of your colleagues turn to, may not always be the best ultimate solution. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So panic is basically severe anxiety. So you can think of anxiety on a spectrum and panic is at the far end. And I think it, the definition of panic is, you know, severe anxiety that leads to wildly unthinking behavior. Panic can show up in a bunch of different ways. And we actually have a diagnostic checklist in psychiatry for this. And I can speak from my own panic attacks. I had panic attacks during residency where I would get tunnel vision. I would feel like I was dying. My, I would get short of breath. My heart would race. I would get sweaty. And so there are a bunch of physical symptoms that show up and then some mental ones, you know, literally felt like I was dying. And I think a lot of people, you know, that feeling like someone is dying is that piece that makes a lot of folks the first time they've had it, if they have access to an emergency room or can get to the emergency room, uh, it will land them in the emergency room. The There's a huge prevalent, high number of people that the first time they have a panic attack, if they don't know what it is, will it'll land them in the emergency department because they think they're dying. Literally, literally. So here, you know, just knowing what the symptoms are and knowing what a panic attack is can be really helpful. So it was certainly helpful that I was training to become a psychiatrist as I was having my first panic attacks because I could go down the diagnostic and statistics manual checklist, you know, oh, check, 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 check. Oh, I just had a panic attack and I knew what it was. So there was some certainty there, right, as compared to, oh, no, am I having a heart attack or am I, you know, is there something else wrong with me? So that piece is helpful for anyone. And also, you know, you're asking, well, why don't medications help panic attacks? Again, there's, you know, panic attacks tend to come on suddenly and panic disorder happens when we start basically panicking about having our next panic attack or worrying about getting worried again, you know. So it's that fear of that future attack that leads to us doing avoidance behaviors. For example, my patient was avoiding driving on the highway uh, when he would, you know, he'd first get panic attacks and then he had this avoidant behavior. So all of these panic disorder actually develops not as a result. It doesn't matter how many panic attacks we have. It matters what we do about them or whether we get into a, a fear-based habit loop around having another one. And so medications don't solve habit loop issues, you know, and that's why they're not going to specifically, you know, thwart having a panic attack per se. And here's where, you know, learning how our mind works and learning to work with our panic attacks and seeing them as a panic attack. That's, that's what I was fortunate enough to be able to do. And I had also been practicing mindfulness for a while at that point. And so I could objectively observe what was happening. And if we can observe what's happening, see that it's a panic attack, see that it comes and goes, there's certainty. And then also we don't get tripped into 
oh no, like when am I going to have my next one? It can be like, okay, well, if I have another one, I know what it is. It will pass and then, and then we'll move on. Not that it's pleasant, but there's nothing I can do about it. And that that certainty of nothing I can do about it is also helpful as compared mm-hmm. to constantly looking for some solution. Dr. Brewer, what are you working on in your lab now that you're excited about for the future? Well, I'm really excited about the promise of digital therapeutics. You know, my lab's been studying and, and developing these app-based mindfulness training programs for a while, and we are just finishing up some really exciting studies where we found, for example, this this Eat Right Now app helps reduce uh, craving-related eating by 40%, uh, this Unwinding Anxiety app. Uh, we did a study with anxious physicians. We got a 57% reduction in anxiety. We did a study with people with generalized anxiety disorder, and we got a, I think it was a 67% reduction. And here we could calculate this number needed to treat. You know, with medications, I have to treat five patients before one person benefits. In this study, we got a number needed to treat of 1.6. And so- that- is impressive. Yeah, I was really pleased to see that. And we can also work out the mechanisms, so both the psychological mechanisms of how these work and also the biological mechanisms. My brain does, you know, brain imaging to see how these things work. We have the smoking app, uh, Craving to Quit, where we could show that we could target a specific brain region that gets activated when people get caught up in craving. And when we can target it, we could predict reductions in cigarette smoking. And so I'm really excited about the promise of digital therapeutics. I'll put a caveat mTOR out there, you know, buyer beware. There are tons of apps out there that aren't mechanistically or evidence-based that, you know, claim science. And so, you know, if anybody's looking at an app, they should just be very, very careful to make sure (laughs) that it actually has science behind it and isn't just just claiming, you know, based on science or science-based, but they've actually uh, that it actually has clinical trials that, that back that science up. So, I think our, you know, digital therapeutics are going to be really helpful in a number of ways. You know, they're, they can be low cost, they can be disseminated at large scale, uh, and they can help underserved populations, hard to reach people, you know, people that are hard to reach geographically can help with, you know, uh, medical stigma where a lot of folks uh, really, are un- unfortunately, are frankly discriminated against uh, by uh, often unknowingly by their physicians. And so, I think we can we can really address a lot of health issues in a way that's cost effective to improve our overall population health. So that's what I'm really excited about and my lab is working on. Well, I know that our listeners would love to have access to your digital therapeutics tool. Are they available? Yes, all of those are on the app stores. You know, the Unwinding Anxiety app for anxiety, the Eat Right Now app for stress eating. I'm going to ask you to go slow (laughs) and tell us what apps are available right now from your laboratory. Uh, We have three apps that are available. One's for anxiety called Unwinding Anxiety. Uh, There's another one for stress eating, emotional eating, overeating. It's called Eat Right Now. And then the third one helps people with smoking and vaping and tobacco products if they're trying to quit smoking, for example, and that's called Craving to Quit. And all of those can be found on the app stores and the Google Play Store. And we'll have a list on our website. Dr. Judd Brewer, thank you ever so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Judson Brewer, Associate Professor in the Medical School and the School of Public Health at Brown University. His books include The Craving Mind and his latest, Unwinding Anxiety, 
New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. The People's Pharmacy is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products made in Germany. K-A-Y-A-Biotics.com. Also by Cocovia Memory Plus, a cocoflavanol supplement backed by four clinical studies that show significant improvement in three different aspects of memory. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,262. You can find the podcast on our website, peoplespharmacy.com. When you go to peoplespharmacy.com, you can share your thoughts about today's show in the comments section for show 1,262. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. You might want to share it with a friend or family member. At our website, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to the newsletter, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week.